This is the Global Shapers Gold Coast podcast, connecting with community and industry leaders to drive dialogue, action and change for a better future. As we shape the future of the Gold Coast and Logan cities, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and their connection to country. Hi, and welcome to the Global Shapers Gold Coast podcast, where we empower our local and global community to create impact in the areas of health, climate change, and shaping our city's future. We're your hosts for this season, Kara and Rashan, and we're excited to bring you another episode with an inspiring local leader. Joining us today is Dinesh Palipana. Dinesh is a senior resident doctor at Gold Coast University Hospital. Dinesh is the co-founder of Doctors with Disabilities Australia and works with the Australian Medical Association to advocate for national policies for inclusivity in medical education and employment. Dinesh has also contributed significantly to scientific advances in the treating of spinal cord injury and restoring function to people with paralysis. Thanks so much for being here with us today, Dinesh. We're really happy to have you on the podcast to be talking about disability and inclusion within the medical sector. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I've been super excited to catch up with you guys. Yeah, us too. Yeah. All right, Rashan, did you want to kick us off with this first question? Yeah, well, one of the things that we always like to ask our guests first up is to give us a little bit of background on your story so that people can understand, especially about how you became a doctor and a lawyer, and then obviously now an advocate for as a, as a speaker. So give us a little bit about your story. Well, Rashan, uh, as you know, I was born in your part of the world. That's so right. We have the same origins. And, you know, Sri Lanka was going through a pretty difficult time back then with the civil war and everything and as with many families my family migrated to Australia and we landed here on my 10th birthday in 1994 and life was really good life life has been amazing so you know I think when we're talking about particularly on a platform like Global Shapers I often reflect that we now have the privilege of living in an economic powerhouse mm-hmm. like Australia that has the ability to influence so many things in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I feel very privileged to have grown up here to have all the resources and all the healthcare, education, everything, because it's been, it's just been amazing. And I know that for a lot of people in the world, that's not the case. So I'm often very grateful when I wake up in the morning to be waking up in Gold Coast, Australia. But I finished school. I was a terrible student. <laughs> and, uh, I first, towards the end of high school, I put my head down and I got into law school. And that's what I did first. And when I was studying law, I had depression, which was quite severe. And it was after having depression and after engaging with doctors and the hospital system, that's when I decided to become a doctor myself. So I finished studying law and I got into medical school and then halfway through medical school, I was involved in a motor vehicle accident that caused a spinal cord injury and paralysis below the chest and my fingers. And after that, I spent uh, about seven or eight months in hospital, another four years putting life back together. I spent a bit of time in Sri Lanka as well during that period. 
And then I came back to med school, finished, and now I'm in my fifth year as a doctor. Wow. So that's life in a nutshell. Today, I work in Australia's busiest emergency department. Mm. I work with the Disability Royal Commission. I'm an ambassador for the Human Rights Commission. I do some work with the Gold Coast Titans in disability, now the disability team, which is really good. So I have, I, I, and spinal cord injury research as well. Mm. So life is good and I'm uh, very grateful. And I think all those experiences, the car accident, the depression, really opened my mind up to a lot of the challenges that people face in this world, particularly with inclusion and disability. And so it's given me the energy to hopefully try and make a change in all these areas. Yeah. Love it. Love it. That's beautiful. Incredible story, Dinesh. Yeah. And yeah, you touched on how your experience with depression sort of was your window into an interest in, in medical studies. And also looking at your bio, you also undertook a degree in law previous to that. So what what sort of was your interest in, in both law and in the medical sphere? What made you want to well, study those areas? Yeah, I mean, when I first came out of high school, I didn't really know. I mean, not many people do, right? There, there are a lot of amazing young people, but they're also people that are still finding their way. And I fell in the latter group. So law just seemed like a good idea at the time. Really, that was it. Today, I understand it to be a lot more, I appreciate it a lot more because I understand that the law is, creates the framework in which we navigate society. It creates the structure that we, we live in and it guides our interactions, guides how we buy things, how we everything. So I appreciate the law a lot more. And most importantly, I appreciate the power that it has to create equity and justice to create a better world for people. And then medicine, I think is, I love medicine too, because it's also a deeply human activity Mm. where you can just do something for one person at a time. And it's a very special connection. And I'm, I'm often appreciative of how sacred that bond is between the doctor and the patient. So they're, they're, they're just amazing professions that really allow us to do something for the world, which mm. I'm pretty, pretty privileged to be a part of both. Yeah. Yeah. I think I came to a very similar realization that law in an abstract sense is very difficult to study, but when you actually start getting out into the world and you realize how, how many areas of life and areas of the system that we're in that it touches, it becomes so much more important. And that's that I've really taken an, an interest in law in, in more recent years just because of that, that realisation and how it integrates, you know, whether your passion is in, in the medical sphere or environment or in human rights. Yeah, it's really all-encompassing. And, and even globally, right, it's, it dictates the way countries interact with each other. Mm. All these things, it's even emissions and everything is guided by the laws. So there's so much power in it. Mm. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to ask you was um, obviously transitioning into medicine from the legal system, studying law. And after the actual accident that you had to go through, did you have any major challenges that I feel like I know the answer to the question, 
Sam, I wanted to understand how did you overcome those challenges in the first, you know, few years of practicing medicine? So transitioning from law to medicine. Yeah. So in the first probably six to 12 months of medical school, it was pretty tough actually, because while I passed the entrance exam and whatever else, my colleagues had a very strong background in biomedical sciences or whatever undergraduate degree they did. They were, you know, the, most of them had science backgrounds in whatever they did before medicine. So I felt like I was a step behind them because I didn't really have a deep understanding of some of those things. Mm. So I felt a bit out of step, but that was just for the first six to 12 months. And then after that, I, I caught up and I felt back in pace with my colleagues. So it, it became a lot easier. But yeah, and then after that, I mean, it, it, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was fine after that. So were people welcoming and what was the general atmosphere with people knowing your background and the transition was it was it actually something people accepted or was there conflict yeah no medical school was great everyone was I think when I started medical school the average age for starting medical school was 24 mm-hmm. so it was, it was all post-grad people mm-hmm. and it was uh, we, we were like a family really mm-hmm. And we still, a lot of us keep in touch. And so everyone's very close. Everyone's very welcoming. It was, it was great. Mm. And then Dinesh, after your accident, when you undertook your first internship, medical internship, and then your first few years practicing as a doctor, what were some of the challenges that you faced through that? The challenges really were main in the hierarchy of the health system and the bureaucracy of the health system so I didn't really have any uh, you know I didn't have any significant challenges working in the logistics and practicalities of working as a doctor it was all it's all been fine I mean obviously there are a few different little differences in the way I might do things or so from that perspective it's all been good my the patients have all been great they mm-hmm. Amazing. The opportunities that I've had have all been excellent, but it's really just navigating the bureaucracy of health and the hierarchy of medicine. And there are some, there were some senior doctors, not not a lot, but there were just a couple along the way that were uh, a little bit challenging. Mm. And the bureaucracy of uh, the hospital and the health system, as most people love bureaucracies, that's <laughs> yeah. Really for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. I understand that you've been at the Gold Coast University Hospital. Tell us a little bit about that time period, that chapter of your life. Yeah. So this is my at the Gold Coast University Hospital. And we, so the doctors work between Rabina, the Rabina Hospital and the Gold Coast University Hospital come under the same health service. So we, we work between both. And it's been a really, it's been a good place to work. Like the colleagues have been great. And the emergency department has been really, really good. The thing I like is that, again, it's a bit like a family. Mm. Everyone's really good to each other. It's a flat hierarchy. And there's uh, just a lot of humility and teamwork, just caring for each other that goes on, Mm. which is a really special thing. Like I said, it's the busiest emergency department in the country. So it sees a lot of patients uh, every day. 
And Gold Coast University Hospital, at one point in the last five or six years, was actually the most expensive hospital ever built in the world. Yeah, wow. Mm. Yeah, which yeah, was, that. yeah, I think it was something like $1.8 billion. You'll have to double check that, but, um, <laughs> but those were, that was one of the bits about it. So it's a really nice facility. And again, mm. I am constantly reminded that after being around the world and seeing some of the health facilities that people have or don't have mm. in some remote parts of the world, I think we are extremely lucky in this country to have a hospital that has, you know, most of the rooms are private rooms and they have TVs and all these things and, and that's public. Yeah. Yeah. It's yep. amazing. Yeah. yeah incredible and it must be so dynamic working in the emergency department too because not only do you have to be moving around a lot but also really having to think on the fly about different sort of you know things that you see coming in you know it's not like you you've been admitted with a patient that you know their medical history straight off the bat yeah so the emergency department is, is a really cool environment because of that reason there's a different thing all the time there are challenging situations they, there are the thing I like the most about it is I feel like I feel like I'm always learning I'm always growing I'm always stretched and challenged in one way or another and I think that's what is really good about life I, I, mm. it's nice to be challenged it's nice to to learn and grow and nice so I, I love that about it and there's a lot of just interesting things like just really crazy, interesting things coming in all the time. Mm. The, the team environment's really good too because everyone works together and it, it's, we interact a lot. So the emergency department's really good. And before I had the car accident, I had a lecture by this doctor who was an emergency physician. And he it was just an introduction to what emergency medicine is, particularly from a pre-hospital perspective. So he was showing all his these photos of what he does for work and what emergency medicine involves. And I just remember thinking about it, I was like, wow, this is really cool. And this is probably what I want to do. So funnily enough, after I had the accident and when I look up in the ambulance, he was there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Same guy. <laughs> connected. So I think emergency medicine like this always been some parallels and links into my life. Mm, yeah and um, one of the things we obviously be given the health industry the elephant in the room how do you think the pandemic and the COVID-19 obviously effects have changed the way the health industry has evolved has it affected the way you work pandemic has been unexpected for I mean who thought that was coming right yeah, yeah. <laughs> just this morning I was having breakfast with my girlfriend and we were at the cafe, we had the press conference on in our phone just to see, because there are a couple of cases in our state mm. to see we would go into a lockdown or whether there was any hint of that. So, you know, it's, a, it's such a different world that we live in, but it's certainly changed health in a number of different categories. One, I think, is research. Mm -hmm because we have seen how quickly given the resources we can develop a vaccine or mm. 
how quickly we can put out different bits of research. And from, from a perspective, some of it was actually damaging because there was a lot of papers coming out with a lot of different information, which is really quite confusing mm. to the scientific community. But at the same time, you know, we've, we've always known that we could roll out things more efficiently, like new therapies. But the system was so inefficient and clogged up. Mm. There's a book by Dr. Eric Topol called The Creative Destruction of Medicine. And he talks about how historically the way we do research and the way we do new therapies is so antiquated and we need to be more efficient about it because mm. we have the ability to do that now. This is not 30, 40, 50 years ago, right? This is 2021. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> it all blurs together. Exactly. <laughs> So we've seen how research can change and we've seen how new things can be rolled out quickly. And I hope that continues into the future where we can develop new therapies for, for all sorts of things. So research has certainly changed, mm -hmm. not just research related to the pandemic, but it's affected how clinical trials and things, because how do you run a clinical trial during a lockdown or a pandemic? So there's been an effect on that because universities have been closed. Yeah. So research is one. Clinical care is another one because so we are so focused on COVID, we forget the thousand other diseases that still turn up to our hospitals. Mm -hmm. And the, the, that shift in focus, there's been some evidence that it's been a bit damaging mm -hmm. where, um, you know, where some serious conditions have gone either undiagnosed or poorly managed because, because of this singular focus on COVID, particularly during the early pandemic. So we, we need to make sure that we keep our attention to other people that are sick as well. And we've adopted things like telehealth a bit better. I was talking to a, a senior doctor in a certain specialty recently and said, telehealth is great because I can see patients who are rural and remote. I can still get them to do a few things and I can, we have the technology to get the information that we need. So for routine, just like, appointments saying hi how are you going like how's how's everything progressing it's still fine because you can still then refer them on to more things if needed yeah the telehealth has been a good tool that's bridging these um, geographies as well and then i think it's opened our eyes into what medicine is broadly because we have the chief health officers everywhere uh, and we've got people like anthony fauci and who so who become community leaders trying to drive, trying to lead our community through these things. So it's given a, shown a light on public health and everything else. So there, there's been a bunch of different things. And then lastly, ethically, it's tested us as, uh, as human beings because one of the things that was happening last year was people with disabilities were being deprioritized from accessing intensive care or ventilation. Mm to give other people priority. So that was happening in some parts of the world. And that is a pretty confronting thing. So we, we've had these conversations and we continue to have these conversations. So the pandemic has really tested us ethically in healthcare. Mm. Yeah. And Dinesh, you've done some research and you've co-authored some papers around that topic of how COVID-19 has impacted on people with disabilities. So, yes, he's touched on the ethical component, but are there any other like significant findings? 
Wow, Cara, you've done your background work. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's impressive. Well, yeah, I mean, so there, there are a bunch of other things like access to healthcare with a lot of practices being out of reach, uh, a lot of specialist appointments, a lot of elective appointments and procedures. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a, more challenges with access, particularly for people with disabilities who might need to follow up or might need some attention. So that's been challenging for people rurally and remote as well. It's been a big deal. But then you get other considerations too, you know, like if you are blind, for example, even simple things like when you go to a hospital and there are signs saying, if you have a fever, go in this direction. Like even those accessibility things, like Mm. you're using a wheelchair and what are the infection control implications if you have to go into a negative pressure room and you have to be isolated or whatever. So there, there are all these different accessibility issues that, cropped up as well Mm. there are a lot of practical things there and people being neglected more people having worse health outcomes you know i mean obviously if like my lung function is 35 percent of what's expected for my age height and gender so if i were to get covid that would probably be a pretty concerning thing yeah considering how my lungs are so that that risk is really really quite significant but you know while we were managing that risk there were a lot of other bits and pieces as well Mm. and usually when it comes to adversity and these kinds of force changes that happen on a mass scale there are there are pockets of innovation that comes through and people are forced to adapt people are forced to change and there's always good sides of things as well are there any current and future innovations in especially the medical industry that you're looking forward to or you're excited about? So I, you're right. I think it has forced us to adapt very quickly. <laughs> the funny thing is medicine was so far behind already in catching up with the digital capabilities of humanity. Mm. Um, I think this has just been an impetus to just get up to speed. Yeah. So, a lot of industries have been like that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it, it's it's funny that so it's pushed us to get up to speed. And I think what I'm most excited about is us thinking about the way we can rapidly develop therapies, to think, mm. uh, which we have proven can be done given the right amount of resources. And I, I hope that has a flow-on effect to all different areas of medicine and things as well so that that's probably the single most thing i'm most excited about and then the uptake of technology which we really needed to do already mm-hmm. yeah yeah and just on that dinesh as well in your research around spinal cord injury and treatment what's some of the those treatments that you're particularly interested in or looking forward to in the future Curry should be a journalist. (laughs) 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 So look, um, with research, I, the last thing I did standing up was to give my mum a hug. Mm -hmm. I'd like to be able to do that again. So spinal cord injury research is something that's very close to my heart because well, I have one, so Mm -hmm. it'd be nice to see a therapy come out. The road to this point for the spinal cord injury community has been littered with so many broken promises. You know, we've we've seen different things come up and down over time. 
So there are a lot of people that have lived through a decade or two and have been disappointed over and over again. So it's important to remain hopeful though, because we want to see a better tomorrow, a better future, and want to see that spinal cord injury changes. So while we find a biological solution, I think it's important to have a world that is accessible and that is socially inclusive. So I'm gonna just make that point. So while we're, while we're doing that, I think it's really important to have an inclusive world. But the spinal cord injury research that I'm primarily leading on involves thought-controlled rehabilitation with electrical stimulation and drug therapy. And the combination of those things in animal and human studies have demonstrated the potential, and it has in a bunch of people, to reverse paralysis and to restore function paralysis. Wow. Yeah. And in the animals, it's shown new nerve growth or nerve regeneration at the injury site for spinal cord. So it's a really exciting area that we're going into. And I'm hopeful that it will lead to similar or better results. Incredible. That's amazing. Amazing. So, Janice, you're, uh, as you mentioned before, you've been involved in a variety of roles and within your work itself where you've strongly advocated for training medical students with disabilities in Australia. So could you talk a little bit about some of the barriers that medical students with disabilities face in terms of employment and stigma? Yeah, well, when I came back to medical school, I was fortunate to be at an institution that was inclusive and accepting. But around that time, there was a policy that came out in Australia that looked at excluding people with disabilities from studying medicine. Wow. There was a policy document that came out in 2015, and it's got a bunch of things. like If you got this um, motor deficit or whatever, then you can be excluded from medical school. And then the more difficult thing I saw then was an email that was getting around when that policy was being drafted and one of the committee members said that this policy should allow us the legal protection if we want to exclude someone with a disability from studying medicine or exclude someone studying medicine who's acquired a disability. So that was like a very hard thing to see. Yeah, of course. And then there are, I experienced some pessimism from supervisors who were in the hospital when I was going through there as a medical student, but there were a lot that were incredibly supportive, which, which was amazing. So it was, so there are, there were policies and there were attitudes, but I think attitudes were the main thing. Mm. If you have an enabling attitude, then we can enable people to do a lot of things. But if you are, uh, not then it can be really really challenging so i've I've faced that but you know practically practically speaking for someone with a high level spinal cord injury that can't use their fingers i've been able to figure out how to do so many things so by and large for a lot of patients i see 99 percent of the time and in the emergency department i'm completely independent and i see just as many patients as everyone else so really, I think whether it be medicine or elsewhere, it's attitudes that's stopping us yeah. from being inclusive. 
yeah and obviously you're a leader in this in this field being an advocate for it as well so have you initiated things within your own organization as a as a day-to-day -day practice and then obviously at a higher level throughout the health sector in general yeah so i've done work with the ama where we've put out some position statements about inclusion in medicine does work in the United States, helping out a campaign called Docs with Disabilities in the UK, so globally, and in India as well. We provided a statement to a court case that was testing this issue. And then in Australia, also the, the same organisation that put out their policy, I worked with them. They're putting out a new one this year, which is far more inclusive. Worked with the hospital. I've worked with a bunch of different organisations, different hospitals as well, and universities on this topic. And the Disability Royal Commission has been brilliant and they've examined some of these issues. And I'm an ambassador now for a program called Includability by the Human Rights Commission, Inclusion. So there's a bunch of really good work going on. There's a bunch of passionate people. I think we're making progress and hopefully we won't have to have too many of these conversations in 10 years time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And along that vein, what legislative or cultural changes would you like to see so that, you know, in inclusion becomes a much more of the norm within the medical sector? So when I was going through, when I was struggling, because then I, then the barrier I faced after graduating from medical school was the job. So even though medical graduates are guaranteed jobs, I had a lot of barriers because I had spinal cord injury. So at that time, the human rights legislation wasn't there. And some of the people with disabilities, so there, there was a case of a nurse, but a very mild disability. So the case was that she had a mild traumatic brain injury. She had difficulty working night shifts because she felt nauseated at night, which is, is it can happen with, with brain injuries. So the state said that she can't be a nurse if she can't work nights, which is ridiculous. Mm. And it went to court and she lost in the end and she had to pay costs. Mm. So the law wasn't on the side of people, but I think now hopefully with the human rights legislation and whatever else we could test these a lot better, but also there are people with disabilities now getting around um, in the system a bit more. So as examples, and so I, I would hope that, but, I think strengthening some of that legislation is really good. You know, yesterday I was at a function with lawyers and we were talking that in, in the legislation that guides the legal profession, it's actually it's an offence to essentially be rude to one of your colleagues. So if you write unnecessarily aggressive correspondence or anything like that, then the Legal Services Commissioner can, um, can discipline you. Wow. So I think the medical profession needs some things like that as well, where if you're, <laughs> you're actually like often rude to each other, you yeah. see it all the time in medicine, but also it can bring about that cultural shift where you, you can hopefully think about, you know, becoming a bit more inclusive and non-discriminatory. And I was chatting with uh, MP yesterday about it. He's like, do you really think we need legislation to do it? He said, and I, I think, we're at a point where we probably do because if the attitudes aren't changing, then you might need the stick as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
um, which is where I think America is probably has a slightly stronger position because of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm-hmm. And obviously, in overcoming these challenges from a legislative top-down point of view as well, you would have naturally, similarly, similar to how we're adapting to the pandemic, learn new skills that an everyday person may not have actually even thought that was a skill. Are there any skills that you've learned as a result of your dis- disability and the, and the situation? Oh, tons, tons. What's your, what's the top three that you <laughs> When I was laying in a hospital bed and then afterwards when I was recovering and I was still laying in bed a lot of the time, I promised myself that I would come out of this situation and I would rise stronger and a better person. Mm-hmm. So I really thought about life and the kind of person I want to be. And I wanted to use that situation to become better than ever. So the things that I hold close, closest to myself are not really technical skills or anything like that. It's just simple things like gratitude. Mm-hmm. Just uh, reminding myself to be grateful for all the things I have and for yep. the privileges and luxuries that I enjoy. And I count those every day in, in the morning, at least. So I think gratitude is a big one. And then integrity, I think, is just valuing one's integrity and never doing your utmost, never to let that be compromised. Mm-hmm. And that's built around things like honesty and doing the right thing and making sure that you know you, you, your integrity is unquestionable. And while it's probably more a value or a principle than skill, I think it, that still allows you to build, everything flows out of that, right? Absolutely. And I actually like the fact that we can frame those things as a skill, because Mm -hmm. even though people might be actually physically able, a lot of their, so to say, mental disabilities might not be able to be seen. But but I absolutely think it's a practice and you do it daily. So I I still think it falls within the realm of a skill. (laughs) Totally. Mm -hmm. And I think on the on the in a similar vein, the third thing is probably giving. And I think we are sometimes in society these days, particularly when you see the way social media is, whatever, consumerism, we're so inward looking. So we look inward and we think about what do I need to get? What, what thing do I need to buy? What thing do I want? How many more followers mm-hmm. will like my post or whatever Mm. and i think that 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 inward lookingness isn't never happiness very rarely happiness yeah might get fleeting moments of satisfaction from it but it doesn't last long right there's always a newer car to buy yeah there's always more followers to be had yeah (laughs) whatever yeah (laughs) beautifully said so where what brings happiness is giving looking outwards into the world and it's doing things for your loved ones your neighbor the people next to you your colleague the community the society changing the world leaving it a better place for tomorrow that is true true happiness it's not about looking inwards it's about looking outwards and um, i think those are the top three things 
mm-hmm. that I try to foster every day. Yeah, they're incredible skills okay. and, and, you know, lessons to have learned. And it's definitely, you know, it's, it's incredible that you've done that self-reflection. And yeah, it's definitely something that's, it's highly admirable as a trait. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And also Dinesh, in terms of your personal struggles with depression and, and, you know, the many people out there who may also be struggling with mental health issues, particularly around challenges with disability. Do you have any advice or resources that you'd recommend? Depression is an incredibly hard thing. Comparing it to paralysis with the spinal cord injury, depression was way more paralyzing than the spinal cord injury was because when you're you're going around in circles in your own head, it's a really difficult thing. It's also relative, like people feel what they feel and you can really go down into the pits and it's a dark, difficult place. And I think, you know, how, how many times do we hear someone saying, oh, and the way they just don't snap out of it or come on, you have a great life. Like, what are you doing? Mm. Like, it's, it's, it's not like that. It's just the person is feeling what they're feeling. Mm. I think um, you just got to keep that in mind and people around can get frustrated. And I know people around me got frustrated when I was going through it. But as one of my friends said, if someone, if one of your close people are going through depression, you just got to keep turning up every day and keep persisting. And, you know, there there are so many different resources, but I think you've got to find a way that resonates with you, like whether it's a GP or a psychologist or whatever, or something that resonates with you. And I think when sometimes when some of these things happen, it's a signpost, it's an orange light for us to change our direction, to maybe adjust the sails a little bit and an opportunity for us to think about life, which is what it was for me. So seize that opportunity and be indulgent and think about any root causes that might have brought you to this point which is what i did and that helped me and let people help let people be there for you and let people help and one day turn it into something positive so you can be there for someone else too yeah yeah and speaking of something positive you were you were the recipient of the queensland of the year award recently what did that mean to you having gone through the roller coaster of a ride it was surreal. Like I didn't even, never imagined, you know, I never ever imagined. So it meant so much to me, but it also means to me that I hold myself to a high standard and I need to keep going and I need to do more and I need to do better because it's a reminder to me that I have to, and that I want to keep going and I want to keep giving and I want to hold myself to a higher standard. Beautiful. Wow. (laughs) And Dinesh, what's been your career highlight so far? That's a big question. (laughs) Um, Graduating from medical school. Yeah. That that was such a special day. Mm. It's really such a big turning point and a, milestone that's just oof. Mm-hmm. still remember the sights and smells and sounds wow 
Wow. It's yeah. just pretty special. Easily. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. And obviously what kind of your, again, the unique situation being through what you've been through, what's some advice you would give to anyone with disability that wants to achieve or wants to work towards their careers and goals? When I was, when I was thinking about my life and career, there were a lot of people that said, oh man, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. Oh, how are you going to get through medical school? How are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? Blah, 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 blah. And there are so many people that tell us that our dreams are too big or bold or ambitious or whatever, right? It's, you see it all the time. But the thing is, 10, 20, 30 years down the track, those people are not going to be there. They're not going to be the ones holding the bill for the life that you live. Mm. There's going to be one person left and it's going to be you. And that's what I realized when I was making these decisions. I'm like, man, all these people have a say in what I should and shouldn't do. But are they going to be around 10, 20 years later? They're not. Like, they're not going to. And then at, at, at sometimes they might be around, but they'll be like, oh, well, you didn't make it, did you? Like, so why should we let other people, particularly with that attitude, dictate mm. how our life should be? Should. Mm. So don't listen. Keep pursuing your own dream and your own reality. Mm. And make sure if, you, if you're ever in doubt, if you're ever at that point, just think, when I look back another decade or two, what decision will make me feel like I've lived a fulfilled life? And that, that's the decision you should make. Beautifully said. Beautifully Very said. powerful. <laughs> just to wrap up, Dinesh, what's your favourite book, podcast or movie? Something you'd like everyone to know. Uh, I'm going to tell you the song. Oh, that's exciting. Juicy by Notorious B.I.G. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Um, and I love it because actually I had a friend who also really liked rap when I was going through medical school after the accident, mm. I used to wake up at 3, 4 a.m., have long days, but we always played Juicy when I was on my way to uh, the hospital. And, you know, Juicy is a song about how he was nobody, and he, how he lived in the ghetto and he had, how he had this really difficult life. And then he made it out of it and then suddenly he was, um, he was a star and he was rapping. So it was a story of coming from nothing into success. Mm. So it really resonated with me and has a lot of meaning. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> That's the coolest recommendation we've had so far. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we've had a song like that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, it's been an incredible opportunity to sit here and actually listen to your insights. And I know Cara and I have learned a lot lot from what you've put through and i have no doubt the listeners are gonna take a lot away from what you've put in front of us so thank you so much hey thank you both i um, really enjoyed the chat yeah we've loved it too it's really great to get to know you and and hear your insights it's been incredible thanks so much for your time thanks guys have a good night <laughs> yeah you too This podcast wouldn't be possible without the support from the city of Gold Coast and Laurie Minto, Global Shapers, Gold Coast Mentor and Director of Operations for Tomra Collection Solutions Australia for funding as well as the podcast support that they provide for us. 
We would like to thank the Cohort Innovation Space for providing this amazing recording studio as well as all the equipment alongside that. To stay up to date with the impact we're creating locally and globally, follow us on Instagram at Global Shapers Gold Coast. If you think you've got what it takes to become a shaper, apply to our hub by visiting our webpage, goldcoast.globalshaper.org.au. We are the Global Shapers Gold Coast Hub of the World Economic Forum. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Bye. guys. Bye.